everyone. Welcome back to the One Link Podcast. I am Brad, and I'm joined, as always, by James. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing great. How are you today? Good. Doing good. We've got our good friend Peter joining us again today. How are you, Peter? Hey, I'm doing really great. Appreciate that you think that it's going so well, but I'm back again. So <laughs> looking right. forward to the time today. You passed your probationary period last episode and you're back and you're better than ever. So let's do it. Great. Well, this is the third installation, I believe, in this series on God's heart for the nations. So in case you missed the last two, you probably want to circle back around and give those a listen. But we're walking through the Bible at this point, somewhat chronologically, but we're looking at different places in the Bible where God expresses his heart for the nations. You know, uh, I think a lot of people grow up just kind of thinking that missions is maybe a New Testament thing or a church thing or just a great commission thing. But I think if you take the whole counsel of scripture into view, then you realize that actually this has been the character of God from the beginning. So looking forward to exploring the word today with you guys. Yeah, for sure. So where do we end last time? Yeah, so last time, uh, the last thing we looked at was the Exodus. So uh, God had made this promise to this guy named Abraham that he was going to make him into a great nation and that all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed through him. And through his grandson, Jacob, who is Israel, he started to fulfill that promise. And so Israel, under uh, Egypt's rule for a couple hundred years, grew into this mighty nation. And uh, the whole book of Exodus is about just that. It's the Exodus, how God raised up and brought out his people from Egypt. So we looked at the Exodus. We looked at the way in which God was ministering through Israel to Egypt and also obviously to the nation of Israel itself. And so now, you know, they've, they've wandered in the wilderness for a time, but we're going to pick it up is with the story of Joshua because Israel is ready to inherit that promised land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob uh, generations before. So that's where we're going to start. That's good with y'all. That sounds good. And so they've already wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and now yes. they're coming back in. We say it so casually, oh, you know, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years <laughs> That's pretty much our whole lives, James. But yes, yeah, it's uh, it, yeah. it's coming together finally. So we'll we'll pick it up actually in Joshua chapter two, and I'll read verses eight to thirteen. So just a little bit of context. So yeah, Israel, the nation, they looked at the promised land, and the vast majority of them said, "We're not ready to take it yet." So God wasn't very happy with that because He had promised them this land. So they. Uh, God said they've got to wander around in the wilderness until everyone in the generation essentially dies off. And we have this new, hopefully faithful generation led by Joshua and his right-hand man, Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb and, and the new generation of Israel is ready to go in and inherit this promised land. And one of their first tests is the city of Jericho. So they go and they scout out Jericho and they meet this woman named Rahab. And Rahab, essentially, if you're unfamiliar with the story, decides instead of reporting the spies for Israel to the, the Jericho government, she decides to hide them and in so doing, side herself with Israel. So 
let's pick up that story. I'll read, like I said, Joshua 2, 8 to 13, and uh, we'll go from there. So the Bible says this, Before the men fell asleep, that is the spies, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family, because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and save us from death. So here we see this admission of of Rahab, who is not an Israelite. She's not a Jew. She is from from this city of, of Jericho. She's one of the, the other peoples. And essentially, she makes this confession of who God is. She says, God is powerful and God is capable of saving. So in some ways, Rahab's confession provides a bit of a template for us to understand how Israel is to interact with the nations and how the nations are to interact with Israel. Because, of course, if you know the story that happens immediately later, God directs Israel to march around Jericho and, and basically completely gives it to them without you know any actual warfare that happens. Um, God just is, is mighty like that. So what do you make of this, this confession that Rahab has about who God is? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you see God responding in grace to those who acknowledge him and choose to obey him. Like you said, this was, you know, this was the land of these Canaanite peoples living there that, uh, you know, had been in rebellion and did all sorts of wicked practices. And so, and even, I mean, Rahab, what little we know of her life, I don't think she was, you know, a model of virtues perhaps, but God responds to her genuine, her earnest desire to see him, you know, to know him and to acknowledge him. And they are spared. And of course we know later she is in the genealogy of Jesus, which seems so unlikely, you know, given all these factors, but here she is. So I think God is a God willing to receive anyone, whatever nation, whatever background to him that will humble themselves and acknowledge him. It's kind of interesting too, that it seems like nobody else did because she freely notes that like everyone and they're scared to death of them. And they recognize that God's in heaven above and earth below, but she seems to be, she and her family seem to be the only one that confess. And even just thinking right now of like, going back to the story of Lot, like he come, he tries to warn his son-in-laws that destruction is coming and they're like, ah, I don't believe you. And they stay, but her family at least believes, uh, or at least a, a portion of them do and come in, into her house and, and are saved. I think it's just really cool that Hebrews in chapter 11, which is kind of considered the faith hall of fame, 1131 says, by faith Rahab. So mm-hmm. she's mentioned as sort of an Old Testament model for New Testament following of this is what it looks like to have faith. She hid these Israelite spies. So, you know, it's it's an interesting story about how she 
considered salvation. And I, I think, you know, she probably had a limited understanding of what salvation meant because I think she was probably primarily concerned with preserving her life in, in a physical sense. But I think she understood just enough of the character of God that she humbled herself instead of, you know, rose up in pride against God. And God honored that. Just as you were talking, I was thinking really of what a, like we think about, like, ah, she hid the spies. We know the Israelites are the good guys. But it really, like, when you think about, like, you turned against everything and everyone that you knew, you know, and if you got caught hiding these spies, like, you were going to be killed or tortured or, you know, like, it was a, sometimes I feel like in our own lives, we're so, my own life, I'm so reticent to stand up against what everyone believes. Like, I'll just keep that opinion to myself or I won't say that. Like she went, she went against all in. It wasn't like a, I, I agree with you. She didn't have a full understanding of all that stuff, but, but she was fully in and she, she committed. Commitment. Maybe that's our, our value for the morning. That's this right. Episode. That's yeah. right. Trusting so, God probably throw in there too. Yeah, <laughs> surely. So we're not going to go through all the stories of Joshua, but Joshua, the book of Joshua essentially walks through how Israel takes this promised land. So. God directs them over and over and shows up in really miraculous ways to allow Israel to inherit this promised land. But um, for those of you Old Testament scholars, you know that they do kind of a mediocre job at best of actually taking this promised land. They take some of it, but they get pretty comfortable and and eventually decide they don't want to take all of it, that what they have is good enough. But really what's kind of interesting for us New Testament Christians is for us to understand how God has this heart for the nations juxtaposed with the fact that here in Joshua, we also see later in the the Old Testament, Israel is wiping nations off the map. You know, God tells Israel to completely destroy these cities, to kill not just the men, but the women and the children and the livestock and to don't take any of it for yourself. How are we supposed to make sense of this juxtaposition of this God who we know is loving and we know has a heart and a plan for salvation for the world, how do we compare that with, okay, this is what we see him calling Israel to do. We see him calling Israel to go to war, which seems very foreign to at least Western American Christians. How how do we make sense of that, you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we have to understand, particularly in our the scope of what we're trying to talk about here with missions, you can't understand missions unless you understand God's judgment and wrath against sin. And so, you know, I, I think we often, it's the same dilemma of how could God, a good God, send people to hell that don't acknowledge him? You know, this we're seeing judgment here in, ju- in the, the book of Joshua in an earthly sense. But, you know, for the people who do, don't repent and follow Jesus, they're, they're facing a judgment even more so. And so... Uh, you know, I think we have, we have to understand there are not innocent people out there that, uh, you know, that we're kind of rescuing these poor, innocent people who are, you know, become victims of sin, right? They're, that's not how it is. They are guilty and, and condemned because of their sin. And so we see that here. There's, even though, you know, maybe in our mind you say, well, why don't they just set up a little mission station and share with people about Yahweh? That's not, you know, that's God's judgment had come upon these people and, uh, as we talked about with Rahab, their response, instead of they heard about all these things God was doing, their response was resistance rather than 
acceptance. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard stuff to read, but I think we have to not put God in this sort of soft namby pamby box. We've got to realize he's a God of wrath and justice as well. I was thinking of the verse in Genesis 15, uh, 15 to 16, talking, God's talking to Abraham and he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall uh, come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God's like, like, I'm giving them more time. And I don't think it's not as though they have no exposure to God over the next 400 years, 500 years. There were people around there that worshiped Yahweh. They heard about it or could have heard about it through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And like God is, God is not slow in keeping his promises and God's not slow how to say it. God's not quick to judge. Maybe it's a better way to say. And like he lets their, he lets their sin build up for a while before he finally comes in and does judge him. And why, why he chooses that time and place to judge is a really good question beyond my understanding. Isaiah 55 says, for your thoughts are not my thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so God in his infinite wisdom decided that this was the time in which he was going to, to end that amount of sin and iniquity and he was going to bring on judgment. And I think we see that, or we will see that uh, with Israel going forward up into the exile, that there comes a point in time that he says enough. And when he does, uh, he's going to bring about destruction even in areas you think like, ah, there's no way this little weak nation that came out of, of Egypt, no military training, no all this stuff, there's no way they could come and take this land. And it should probably be a good warning for us today, you know, in any nation. But as we go, we say like, are we living, are we living, living wickedly? Are we, what's the state of that? Because God will not endure that forever either. What's your thoughts, Peter? You're the, you got, you got to ask the question, but you're the one that's put all this deep th- theological thought into it. I don't know about that, but. I think for me, really the storyline, you know, it's easy to read the story and read it from, from human eyes and say, man, this is a story of how Israel triumphed. And I think that's totally missing the point. I think this story is all about God's faithfulness to Israel and to himself, to keeping his promise and his consistency in character as one who, yeah, he's not a pushover God. He's not just lovey-dovey, you know, all love. Um, there, there's that judgment aspect too. Really, it's not all about Israel's worthiness at all. So as we're about to see, God isn't just judging the nations. He's also judging Israel. And so he even raises up people who are judges to judge Israel. And later he raises up kings to lead an unfaithful Israel. And later he raises up prophets to prophesy against an unfaithful Israel. So I don't think we should look at Israel and look at the nations and say, man, they're experiencing two different sides of God. In some ways, they are totally experiencing the same God and God is being faithful to both and he's being, you know, he's exercising his judgment on both. Like you said, the timing is beyond our understanding as to why that is the case. But we do know that these nations that Israel in this story is wiping out we know that they had the chance to repent because Rahab did. And um, later we're going to look at the story of Ruth and she did. So God was not unfaithful in, you know, reaching these people. Um, so I, I, like, like Brad said at the very beginning of this conversation, I don't think we should read it 
as, oh, they're innocent and God is unjustified in what he's doing. I think God is completely justified. He's exercising grace with Israel for a short while. Let me read one more verse, I think, uh, you know, not to belabor the, the, the discussion here, but Romans 1, starting uh, Romans one eighteen. I mean, here's Romans, Paul's great gospel, you know, explanation book here uh, where he's talking about all the grace of God and all that uh, and Jesus. But here, here's what he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And so on and so forth. So the peoples that that we read about being wiped out here in Joshua, they, uh, as we've said, they're not innocent. They they had opportunity to know God and to worship Him, and they chose rebellion and resistance. So we can't take the gospel out to the nations without understanding this side of it, the the judgment of on sinners. So wanted to make sure that was crystal clear. Yeah, and I think that's God's call to us is to go and proclaim His reconciliation, to proclaim that. But that they, but there is a warning side too that. If you don't repent, uh, you'll face an everlasting judgment. So just one more thought on this before we, we press on. How does that inform our modern understanding of missions? You know, because I think a lot of people, especially people in my generation and younger people, think about missions being this, you know, I'm going to drive the lifeboat out there and save as many people as possible from you know poverty or from sickness or from ailment and i'm doing all these good works and things and we we kind of underemphasize the judgment of god or the wrath of god that's coming to them if they don't repent so how do you feel like this principle just the the character of god expressed in this way should it maybe does inform or should inform how we do mission well i know when i was serving overseas one one of the things that we called evangelism was the main thing uh, and that may seem like, uh, you know, to some people that have maybe a little bit uh, different view, like you're sharing, that may seem like, well, you know, here's people that are needing food, needing all these things. How could that not be Maine? Well, their greatest need is spiritual. And I believe very strongly in meeting physical needs. I think that there's, we see that in the Bible. We see that, uh, we see impact of that in the nations. But it, it can't be separated or, you know, without gospel proclamation. You know, if people are fed now and not reconciled with God, we've not really, you know, done them any great eternal service. So I think we have to keep that as our main focus is reconciliation because they are in a, they're dead in their sin. I think the analogy I think of sometimes is, it's like if you if you were in the military and you know what a grenade looks like and one falls on the ground beside somebody and you don't warn them like the greatest thing you can do is warn them push them shove them yell at them grenade and in some ways that's like like you have an impending judgment that's coming you know if i if i shove you over and i break your arm but you don't get blown up by by a grenade or a landmine like that's kindness and so 
while we want to do those other things, we want to heal the sick and we want to feed them and do all those things. And I'm with Brad, 100% agree in that. And I think that can be great avenues to share the gospel, but it's not it's not the good news. Uh, there's lots of people around the world that are trying to do good things, but it's insufficient. By some ways for us to live in reality, mm-hmm. we have to understand life has judgment as part of it. Our, our mm-hmm. actions are going to be judged. And that's even true, you know, believers or non-believers, we're going to have to give an account of, of what we do. So we've got to tell people. <laughs> yeah. We've got to tell people. I think so if I can summarize James, sharing the gospel cross-culture will involve pushing and shoving and yelling at people. That's right. Maybe breaking their arms. Is that is that kind of your model for uh, gospel proclamation? An occasional <laughs> movie side, movie side, uh, movie site. You know, tackle and the big explosion right. behind you. <laughs> it's not that, but just an analogy. Just an analogy. Yeah, just right? an analogy. That's right. Sometimes I wish I lived with a little bit more of that sense of urgency. And I think some ways, Peter, I'd like to know your thoughts because you're more in in a younger generation. But in some ways, I just feel like the the more we are in touch with the complete character of God, the more correct and effective our missions will be. And I feel like God's character is so big and we are so frail that sometimes, not sometimes, often we just oscillate one way or the other. You know, it's either all like all hellfire and brimstone or it oscillates the other way, which is kind of where we're at now, maybe of, of God is all love and he wouldn't, he wouldn't ever actually judge somebody for this. But if we could somewhere be in the middle and hold this, friend of mine described it, hold these two things that seem to be an opposing opposing force and hold them together even though they're like at the expanses of God, um, we would do we would do better. And holding his justice and his mercy, it's hard to bring them together, but he's able to do that in an infinite way. What's your thoughts well, to your it, generation? Yeah, it, it's hard to understand why God would judge when our cultural moment has thrown out objective reality and objective truth, right? So if there's no truth, then God is a bigot to judge because he's just kind of setting this arbitrary goal. Obviously, the Bible would say he's sovereign and therefore has the power and is justified in setting that arbitrary standard, you know, even if it is, even if it seems arbitrary, even if we don't understand it. You know, I I think also our, our cultural moment is really looking for what makes me feel comfortable, what makes me feel good, what is therapeutic to me. And so we've created this therapeutic Jesus and therapeutic gospel that says, yeah, for me to have salvation and for me to live the abundant life looks like me being happy all the time, being fully content with what I'm doing, self-actualizing, you know, knowing my goals and my passions and my proclivities. There's an aspect of that in the gospel, undoubtedly, because God made each of us individually and, you know, we're created unique and God has a vested interest in our prosperity. But there's also the wrath of God coming to all of mankind who doesn't, you know, repent. And so that just doesn't really fit with most people's worldview these days. And so evangelism in that worldview becomes really taboo because it involves telling people hey, you have to change because there is reality that is coming for you, whether you whether you like that or not. So I feel that as a, as a member of, you know, honorary member of the cusp of millennialism and, and Zoomerism, um, I myself feel that at times where I'm like, man, am I really like wasting my time 
just trying to save all these people or tell all these people the gospel, you know, not that I can save, but the more and more I understand the character of God, the, the greater importance I think evangelism has. So good word. Excellent. So where does it go from here then? Yeah, let's press. So I, I kind of mentioned, so we have a whole book of judges because God's not interested just in judging the nations, but he's also judging Israel and, and trying to get Israel to be faithful to the covenant that he gave him or he'd give them, but uh, they don't. <laughs> they don't. So uh, we'll pick it up right at the beginning of Judges, and we won't spend long on Judges because, honestly, it's a really messy book, and I'd encourage you to go back and read it sometime if you're rusty in your Judges. But uh, I'll read for us Judges 2, 1-4, to 4, which kind of sets the tone for the rest of that book. It says in the CSB, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I will now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. Here we see God establishing this judgment, this basis for judgment on Israel, because we have this post-wilderness generation, this new Israel that's come up out of Egypt. They all have a memory because it's in their parents' memory of the exodus, of this great moment of triumph where God led them out into this promised land. They don't obey. They don't they don't listen to him. And I think it's really ironic, and this really creates a pattern for the whole, whole Old Testament from here on out. The people, they hear this word from the angel of the Lord, and they respond with weeping and with mourning. And yet we know that this is just a cycle that repeats itself of they repent, and then they grow complacent, and then they sin, and then God shows up and is faithful to them, and then they repent again and then they fall into sin again and so i think this this verse is useful just to understand okay what is happening in the life of israel and 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 what god is doing in the world because yeah we see israel kind of being judged as well which we, we did talk about that a little bit before so i don't know if you had any extra thoughts on that passage well i think further question of just how does this fit into god's heart for the nations like how do we see this fitting in yeah i i think it's important for God in the way that he desires to interact with mankind, especially at this stage, to have a people for himself that's living according to his law, right? He wants Israel to be this city on a hill, this you know shining light for people to have hope and to have truth. And Israel is just not living in that reality. They're not living out their end of the covenant that God had just immediately given them before this. So I think it's important to know that in some ways, you know, how God desired to interact with the nations at this point in history was through Israel, but Israel failed at doing that. And so I think some of the reason why it's obscure how God is loving the nations is because Israel is failing to keep their end of the bargain. And God desires to love the nations through Israel and to serve the nations through Israel. But instead, Israel, you know, is requiring their own judgment. But in the purification of Israel as a nation, which happens over and over and over again, we see 
these leaders be raised up who are these prototypes and they're bad prototypes, but they're prototypes of a coming judge and a coming king and someone who is going to ultimately be genuine salvation to the nations. And it's not in a fallible nation of Israel, but it's in, you know, the perfect Jesus Christ that's coming. So I think we have this precursor, little taste of what it would look like to be in a gospel led kingdom, even all the way back as far as the time of the judges. Well, I think, and I think you ultimately see the absolute necessity of one God in his grace has to give, uh, you know, has to bring salvation to people. If there's anybody that had a shot to maybe earn it and do it on their own efforts, maybe you could say Israel did. And, and we see over and over again, they cannot do this themselves, that God is the only one who's able to hold up this covenant. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, that cycle you talked about, they sin and everyone does what's right in their own eyes or, you know, however it's described. And then God's judgment comes in the form of these foreign nations coming and oppressing Israel. And, and so, you know, that God allows that it's not about, you know, the, these are the teacher's pet Israelites. Uh, he, he is about the gospel going forth as well. And I think the hope here is that, as you said, that they would be a, a light to the nations, but instead they are corrupted by the nations. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, their, their judgment is, uh, from these nations as well. So I think God is much more interested in the, the solve this reconciliation plan than he is in like, Hey, let's make this little pet nation to, you know, to dote on. I think, you know, to press on, but it's in the same chronological context. In the time of the judges, we see Israel's unfaithfulness, but we also see key individuals' faithfulness, you know, kind of juxtaposed against that. And one of those people, besides the judges, or at least some of them, is Ruth. And Ruth actually gets her own book, so you can glance at that when you have time, but Ruth is from Moab. She's not a Jew, Um, but if you're unfamiliar with the story of Ruth, basically Ruth marries into this Jewish family and her and her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law all become widows. And so they go back to this promised land, to the land of Benjamin, I believe actually, and essentially become grafted into the nation of Israel. So I'll read just an excerpt of, of Ruth, but it's only four books and is, is greatly worth your you know, 20 minutes that it would take to read it. But I think this is another way that God interacts with the nations at this time. So Ruth, this is Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Ruth replied, this is to her mother-in-law. She says, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And key in on this, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. So Ruth, in the same vein as Rahab a few generations before, Ruth essentially understands who God is, that God is the best chance that she has at a hope and a future, that her hope isn't in Moab or the gods of Moab, but her life path, her her destiny is going to be tied in with, with the God of Israel. And 
we actually see God honoring this like crazy, right? Because the story of, of Ruth, she goes on and interacts with Boaz, and Boaz is this kinsman redeemer who buys her back and eventually marries her. And Ruth becomes the great grandmother of, of David, arguably the, the greatest king or even the greatest character kind of in this whole history of the nation of Israel. Um, it was also in the line of Jesus, right? So we see the nations being grafted into the heritage of Jesus, of of the King, of the Messiah. So I think as we read Judges and we see God judging Israel, and we also see God judging the nations through Israel, we also have to remember, well, actually God is still very intimately reaching out to individuals in the nations because we have Ruth here who has this story that's just incredible, you know, to be able to see God providentially work in her life to have such a key part in in history. So I think that's pretty cool. God's sovereignty is on display here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you see God receiving people of any nation that earnestly pursue him, accept him. And so this is, I think we've gotten so used to some of these stories. We don't realize how shocking they were for first century Jews. You know, you're reading the gospel of Matthew and you're like, wait, what Gentiles in here? This is the Messiah we're talking about. We can't have Gentiles in, in Jesus's, you know, genealogy. And, uh, but back to back there you get Rahab and then you get Ruth and a couple of Gentiles. So, you know, we lose the, how significant that was at the time of, of really saying, Hey, this is a gospel for the nations. Yeah. I think it'd be almost like as Americans, if we're thinking about like, let's say, let's say our next future great president, we can get onto all kinds of political debates, but down the road, there's going to become this great president and then be like, oh, and his grandmother, great grandmother was the Taliban. Like that's the, that's like the shock factor or I sales or. Yeah. And I think that should just really give us a lot of hope more than anything else, because we know that God is weaving this grand tapestry of a story together from people from all backgrounds and all nations and all, all places and all times. And we just have no perspective <laughs> on what God is doing in the world at any given moment. So we really just have to seek what does faithfulness look like in our time, in our space, in our place, while just trying to understand God more and maybe getting just a taste of what he's up to. But I think a story like Ruth's story helps us have a heart for the nations because we know that there are people who God is working on their hearts, you know, across the world in in Russia, in Africa, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, you know. So we have to be faithful to go and share the gospel. Absolutely. So where's the story go from here, Peter? Yeah, well, the judges are really a messy time. <laughs> so there are a couple highlights and a lot of lowlights and eventually God raises up a final judge who's kind of got this dual role as judge and, and prophet, and that's this guy Samuel. So God raises up Samuel as, as a final judge, and Samuel, essentially, God uses him to usher in the time of the kings. So uh, I'll read just for the sake of transition from 1 Samuel 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, and we'll get sort of a, a blip of what the heartbeat of Israel is like at this time of the end of the judges. So 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20 say, the people, that is Israel, refused to listen to Samuel. No surprises. No, they said, we must have a king over us. 
then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. So here we see just a huge disconnect from where God called Israel to be and what God called Israel to do in the law and in Deuteronomy and in Joshua as they inherited the promised land. A huge disconnect between that and where Israel is now, right? Because here we see Israel want to be like the nations. So they've abandoned their God. They've forgotten his voice. They've forgotten his promises and his law. And, you know, this is the the missionary who all of a sudden decides, I don't want to be a missionary anymore. I think I'll become a, a Buddhist or I think I'll become a, a Muslim or something. I mean, they have just completely dishonored God and, and left him behind. So I think that's, you know, really key for our understanding of what the spiritual condition of the people of Israel was like at this time, because man, God is just really patient with them because they did mm-hmm. not get it. What's flashing to my mind right now, one is just right above it, uh, verse seven, God said to Samuel, obey the, obey, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So it's a rejection of them. And to me, the, what flashed into my mind, the warning for us, like how many times as Christians, do we want to be like the nations around us? We want to be like the people around us. And there is something for contextualization. Like I'm, I'm going to contextualize the gospel, but I have to remain separate. I'm not going to be like the nations around around them, and I am going to hold fast to God. I think it's a dire warning to us uh, when we don't. And it's a, it's a hard balance, I think, to strike of contextualizing our life, not being so austere, weird, or out of touch that we're not able to communicate the gospel to them, but at the same time, not becoming them. And I feel like even our talk earlier about about your generation, Peter, as generations come and go, we're it's like a tide and it really, it really pushes us and moves us even in the church. And sometimes we're not really aware of that. We're just kind of floating along with them where we need to be like hanging on to a big solid rock. Sounds good. You guys nailed it. I don't have anything to add. So God grants their wish. So Israel says, give us a king. So God says, okay, Samuel, you better warn them what's going to happen. And so he does. And they say, give us a king nonetheless. So God directs Samuel to go to a guy named Saul, who for all intents and purposes is the most qualified guy on the block. He is strong. He's mighty. He's a warrior. He's good with women. He is king in the worldly sense of a king and it doesn't work out too well (laughs) to say the least so if you're familiar with the story of of Saul essentially he uh, becomes really prideful and um, really paranoid and so as God uses David to fight within Saul's army against primarily the Philistines David gets more and more favor and Saul becomes more and more jealous and eventually Saul disqualifies himself from leadership and, and God anoints a second king who is David. Fortunately, that works out a lot better though for David, for the nation of Israel. And so we're going to look at something that God does in David's life. And that's where we're going to end our time this week, because this is actually significant. This is perhaps one of the most significant things in terms of God revealing himself to mankind since, you know, since last episode, since he was working in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So we'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 11. And this is God speaking 
through the prophet Nathan to David. It says this, The Lord declares to you, that's David, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So this is a huge promise that God makes to David, because essentially what God is saying is saying two things. One, I've remembered the covenant that I made hundreds of years ago with your fathers and your forefathers, and that's not lost on me. And two, I'm upping that covenant in the form of an eternal throne, a kingdom that's going to last forever. So it's not just that I'm going to make you into a great nation, and it's not just that the nations of the earth will be blessed, but also that the king of this nation is going to be eternally reigning, and it's going to come from you, David. And so that's just incredible, right? So you would think that David would think, oh, I'm going to have a son. He's going to have a kingdom even better than me. That son becomes Solomon. Great. But I'll, I'll go ahead and read, and then we can, we can analyze both these passages together. David understood what God was doing in his life, that it wasn't just about his immediate biological son, but it was about eventually who we know as, as Jesus. So the immediate next passage, 2 Samuel 7, I'll start in verse 18. King David, then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. So David understood what Saul didn't and what Israel didn't, that God desired to create this kingdom into an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of actually people from all tribes, all ethnicities, all languages, through the ultimate king, who is Jesus Christ. David got that. Next week, we'll see Solomon got that too, at least in his younger years, he did. But what do you make of this promise that God gives to David to establish his throne forever and David's understanding of what, what God's trying to do in it through him? I think it speaks, Peter, to what you said at the beginning of the podcast that the the Great Commission, the you know the gospel going to the nations, didn't start in Matthew twenty eight. Right? It's this has been a consistent story throughout, and so you have all these characters in the New Testament who are going back and quoting these things that you know from the Old Testament, and you have people like. Paul and Peter and Philip sharing the gospel. Well, they didn't have the New Testament. They're using all these Old Testament scriptures to proclaim the gospel about the Messiah. Uh, and so this is this is one story of of a Messiah coming to save that, that weaves through all this. So I think it shows that consistency. I also think it just shows a lot of wisdom uh, on David and his response and his understanding. And it's you know if we look at the history of mankind, every time someone 
conquers a nation or you know sets himself up as emperor king whatever you know like he's beginning to establish his line his house and none of them last very long you know like i think some of the chinese dynasties i think 700 years might have been about the max hitler was going to have you know a thousand year reich if i remember correctly like all these things and it's like that's when you compare that to forever and you compare that what god was setting up and it's going to look a lot different than what everybody saw it but he's different than everyone. He sets things differently. He reigns differently. So for people that are really in tune with God up until this point, people that are tracking the narrative, we see sin enter the world and corrupt God's original design, but God enacting piece by piece, generation by generation, this plan of salvation. And it's this progressive revelation of just more and more how God is being faithful, judging when it's time to judge, being gracious when it's time to be gracious, but all the while enacting this plan for salvation and hope that never was about Israel or any individual, but always was a hope and a light for the nations. I think that's a great summary, Peter, maybe a great place to to pause on this podcast because I think you've you've said it well. James, any any parting shots here as we get ready to wrap up? No, I'll be excited to continue continue this conversation and looking at where and how God continues to work in the story of mankind. And I'm exceedingly grateful to be on this side and able to look back at these scriptures and at these promises. And, you know, we just finished Easter here. And one of the things brought up was about, you know, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus like explains all these things that were in scriptures concerning himself and how uh, thankful I am to be, to be on this side of it. And then how much I want to be used to proclaim his goodness and his glory and his reconciliation and also his judgment and his justice among the nations. Amen. Well, Peter, we're always uh, grateful to have you. And maybe the next time you'll be doing a podcast with us, you'll be a dad. So we're, we're praying for you there. And yeah, just grateful you're for your contribution. Well, I appreciate the platform and, and really appreciate y'all's input too. So looking forward to what this might do in your life. And hey, if you've been enjoying this series, holler at, at James, holler on our social media. We'd love feedback. We're always looking to get better and to improve. So um, really appreciate this time, gentlemen, and y'all have a good afternoon. Yeah, you too. All right, we'll see you next time on the One Link Podcast. Mm-hmm.